Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Mike Michalowicz. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Josh. Thanks for doing this with me. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for joining me. <laughs> I flipped it on you. I said, thanks I, for doing it with me. And you're like, oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Now I own this podcast. I was just so. reading. You also have a podcast. And I was just reading about it. So I do. I do. Also, we're, we're being a bit friendly because we're used to seeing each other at 6 a.m. And uh, we're in a writing group together. Yeah. And, and dude, you're, you're bringing it home. Like you're the stalwart. You're the foundation. You're there every single time. I would say there, I'm probably the second, I'm the runner up right now. And now Damon hopped in today. It was good to see the three of us. Oh, there've been times when it's been just him. I, I've definitely, there've been times when I'm, I can't make it. And so I pop in at yeah, like yeah, yeah, me too. 645 just to like, see, you know, yeah. support and he's there. So, yeah. and actually I'm going to use that to segue into, I think something. So you've written this book, you've written several books. Fix This Next is what I'm in the middle of reading now. Profit yeah. First is what I read before. And here's how I'm going to introduce them is that uh, I was so happy when my book got to over 100 reviews on Amazon, uh, almost all five stars. Nice. And Profit First is 5,000. Is it six? It's like over 5,000 reviews. Yeah. And they're almost all five stars. Yeah. This is incredible. Yeah. Then I started reading. I was like, oh, no wonder. <laughs> I mean, if I hadn't met you first, because I met you before reading it, and I can read it in your voice. And you are incredibly friendly. You're incredibly supportive. And if I didn't know that first, I'd, your book is, um, your humor is a bit corny, I would say. Totally. I was silly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And since I know you, I'm reading it in your voice. I'm like, this is really fun and funny, but super helpful. Thanks, yeah. I'm, I'm going to contrast for listeners just a core part that I came across, like the core part that I see is at one point, you are, you're running a couple of businesses. Uh, you have some measure of success by an old standard. And did you actually go into a Range Rover dealership and say, I want the most expensive one you have? Oh, yeah. Dude, I was such a dick. Like, I didn't know at the time. But I was the definition of dickhood. Like, <laughs> I, well, just to give us a little bit of context. So I'm an entrepreneur uh, ever since I graduated college. Not, not that we have that gene in my family or something like that. I just I kind of fell into it and then fell in love with it. I sold one business and I did pretty well in the financial exit. And then the second business, I did extraordinarily well. And uh, I thought it was hot, hot shit. So we walk into a dealer, my wife and I, to get a new car, you know, a Land Rover or whatever. And uh, my wife whispers over and she's like, can we really afford this? And, and I, I'll never forget the moment. I said, you got more money than God. I literally said those words. And I even saying it right now, I feel chilled. In that moment, everything shifted down. I felt like, what did I just say? Because it wasn't, it was this, this kind of internal ego at its worst case erupting. And I said it in those words and I was like, oh my gosh. And uh, from that day forward, I never saw it. My money evaporated so quickly because of my own ego and just behavior. And I, and I wiped myself out financially, which I now consider the greatest wake up call is that I didn't understand finances. I didn't really understand entrepreneurship. Lucky I had some successes, but I didn't understand the essence of what success is. And that's when why I've devoted my life to writing books and hopefully have been, I call it de-dicked, which is not a good <laughs> Hopefully I'm de-dicked. Like I, I, I hope, I don't know if I can control, but I never want to return there. I'm, I'm ashamed of who I was in regards to my ego. And I, I want to contrast that with later in the book, you're talking about living frugally and how joyful it is, how the words that hit me, this is a very small section of the book, but this hit me the most. The ultimate goal is financial freedom. And freedom to me, it, it hit me like um, the book Getting Things Done. When I met David Allen, 
he said, this book is about mental freedom. And the more that we free ourselves, the less we're under control of others and less we're frantic and, and, you know, and out of control. And you're living, I, I take it, a very financially free and many other boys probably free life. And I think richer than God, or the, even if you were richer than God, I think that you'd prefer this way now. Oh my gosh, yeah. So it's funny, I was, I was talking with someone and this just a few days ago, it hit me. Um, he was saying something, we're talking about success and like how you define it. And it's interesting, the different definitions I hear from so many people, and, and I like them all, but there's one now that sticks with me. And that success is having a disattachment from the affects of success and not placing judgment on it. You know, I have a nice home compared to uh, so many different standards, but it's not, it used to be like, oh, that would be a point of differentiation. That is to show my success. No, it's right to bring about the comfort and experience I want with my family, my children, they're adults now. So maybe in the future, grandchildren and stuff, friends neighborhood. There's different meanings. I don't care to show off anymore. I really don't care about it. And actually, if, if something's put in my lap and it kind of, like, for example, someone sent me this, um, this bottle of bourbon because I've been making old fashions recently. Like, oh, this is the best. And it, it's like a $500 bourbon. And I received it. I'm like, I, I just don't want people to see that, that I have this. I don't, cause, cause I don't want people to think like I'm trying to show off good bourbon or, or, or this expensive bottle. So I almost have a little bit of disdain for that, which also is a problem too. I think I'm afraid of going too far the other way. So it's a disassociation from the affects of success, I believe, but it's also not a disdain for it. Like to, to place judgment on anything, I think it's very Buddhistic, but it's kind of where I'm going. And it's a very comfortable position to be in. Oh, and last last little kind of diatribe here. So I was uh, listening to, I'm reading a new book, or new to me, called The Happiness Hypothesis. I don't recall the author's name. I think it's Jonathan Haidt. That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. He's been a guest. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. He shared something really interesting and it's resonating with me. There is established belief that money does buy happiness up to a ceiling. Like if you, in the US standard, make say $50,000 a year, whatever it is, at a certain point, it satisfies very Mavlovian type of standards, like you know, food, water, shelter, which does increase happiness as that's, that's available. But what he argued in the happiness hypothesis is there isn't this cap. In fact, more money brings more happiness. His argument was, we just don't know where to shop. Most people say, I need that fancier car, the bigger house or more houses. And, and it's a consumption mindset. He goes, no, money that is channeled toward an experiential mindset, contribution, communal activity, that type of stuff, the more money you have actually brings about even greater degrees of happiness. And I've really been ruminating on that. I'm reading from you. And this is actually what I, I felt Profit First was really about values and how to live by your values. Mm-hmm. If you value, I mean, the whole thing is putting profit first. Yourself ahead of growth would be the main thing I think that most people think of they're driving toward. But I read the book is, is to say to someone, live by your values. Sounds great. But how exactly do, do you do that? And it's this mix of the very low level logistical, like do these steps in this order. Yeah. Start with this one, you know, email me for accountability that you're going to do this, then create these accounts and do this thing. And on the face of it, it sounds too low level. That's so, it feels so far removed from what are my values? What do I really want to do in life? And yet that's what gets you there. 
Yes. Yes. So um, the technique I use is, uh, I call it channeling behavior as opposed to changing behavior. I observed in my own pattern and so many people that I've privileged now of interviewing, just hanging out with, I've asked them, I said, what, you know, how do you get something that you know is your best interest to lose weight and so forth? Most say, I have to change my behavior. That's what I thought. Like, you know, if I want to exercise more, I got to change my mindset and crank it up and so forth. Well, I found an easier path. What channeling is, is to look at our established patterns and put a mechanism around it that that same pattern, that same behavior can be executed on, but now it drives a different result. So interesting with finance is how I ran my books for my business and also my personal life. And so many people I spoke with do the same is my accountant says, read the profit and loss statement. You have to know that inside now and read the balance sheet and the cash flow statement, tie these things in together. And it, it gives you the pulse of your business. And you got to do this every day, once a week, really dig into it. And I was like, okay. And I'd walk out the door and not do that. Instead, I'd log in my bank account and say, I have money or not. This is so familiar. Yeah. Right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You were totally saying, right. So, and by the way, that's important. That's familiar because I, I talk about this in my books is, you know, we need to build connection with each other because for someone to trust a new system it is very difficult unless there's a basis of experience saying, oh, I already trust this level of experience. So, so many people do that. We log in our bank account. Do I have money or not? And that, that's how I was running my business. And, uh, there was an emotional tie-in too. If I had a lot of money one day, I'm like, this is amazing. Life is lined up. And the next morning after I paid all my bills, life sucks. What's wrong with me? <laughs> I'm an idiot. Yeah. So I said, okay, this is how I really do it. Can I put a mechanism in place? And that's what the profit first system is. It's a really simple system. It sits at the bank and it channels that behavior. I use this now in other aspects of my life. So about seven years ago, I started exercising religiously. I used to exercise. I always believed in the value of it, but it was very sporadic. And um, I made a, not just a commitment seven years ago to change it. I looked at my behavior and I noticed something interesting. When I wake up in the morning, I would go to the bathroom, fire up a cup of coffee, start scrolling through the news and say, yeah, I should work out, should work out and wouldn't. But looking at that pattern, wake up, go to the bathroom. I was like, oh, I can put a, a, a behavioral interrupt there. I put my sneakers on top of the toilet seat. So I'd wake up the only way I can use the toilet is by grabbing the sneakers and I'm like, turn my hand, just put them on my feet. And then the momentum kicks in. And that, that was the game changer. It was that simple. So that's what I try to teach in profit first. And you'll fact, if you like fix the snacks and other books I've written, you'll see that consistently what I'm trying to do is just channel established behavior to get the results. We want. Yeah. It's when I was reading, at first I thought when I was reading about the counts, I was like, oh, maybe I could do it on a spreadsheet. <laughs> and, and you're like, don't do it on a spreadsheet. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I realized that it's what you're talking about. It's setting things up so that the natural thing to do is the, the effective way. Yes. And at first I was reading, when you had, you had your instant assessment tool. Yeah. I'm looking at it and it's not quite a spreadsheet. It's a bunch of boxes that you fill, fill out. Right. And you're saying like, take out the subconscious stuff. And at first I was like, this guy must have really done, he must be a serious accountant person. He must have really gone through and like knows accounting to figure out what exactly. But the more you kept saying, just don't go into too much detail, get the, get the gist of it. Yeah. Which is what I tell my students when I teach entrepreneurship, because I have them do profits and losses. And I say like, don't get too much detail. And like the business school students really get into the detail. Yeah. I don't stop them. But then I realized, I think that you probably at the beginning, let me guess, probably at the beginning you said, all right, we got to get the profit first. And then you then realize you had to fine tune it a bit here and there. Like you didn't come from theory 
and then made the perfect system. Oh, no, totally. You got broad swaths and then you had to refine some stuff because it looked detailed. But then the more you said, don't worry, but don't sweat the details, I realized I see what he's trying to do here. Yeah. I bet he probably did it broadly. And then people said, oh, you know, you should really refine it here. You should refine it there. And you took the- I need more. I need more. Yeah. You know, it's, it's human nature to bring complexity to where we already have confusion because it's, it feels- it feels like you'll serve that. So I don't know how to become profitable. Therefore, let me investigate ways to do it. And since, since I don't know how to be profitable, clearly it's something that's outside my grasp. We actually, subconsciously, I believe, bring complexity to things. There's a, a concept out there called Oxum's Razor. And the, the general argument is the more simple the solution, the more likely it is the appropriate solution. So you know, we go toward complexity by default, but it's actually simplicity that will drive the results. I'm also a believer in the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule, in that a few things will have great impact, not the many things. And I was looking at accounting, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's all about doing all these different things. That's bringing complexity. What's the one thing? And part uh, first, I'm the first to, to suggest it is nothing new. It's not like, oh, Mike invented something. This is a concept that's been around since BC. It's the pay yourself first principle. You earn some form of income in your personal income. Take a percentage, remove it, hide it away. It's your future savings, and then live your lifestyle off the rest. And uh, I said, "Oh, wow! I could just apply it to my business." To your point, when I, when I first rolled it out, I, I'm the ground zero for this concept specifically applied to business, which now goes back twelve, maybe fifteen years ago. I started thirteen years ago, actually, because I remember I started in two thousand eight. It was like crunchy, and and I started to see how I tried to cheat my own system of like borrowing for myself and so forth. Once I kind of figured it out for myself, then I went to a community of people I knew. One, one tip, by the way, is never go to friends because friends will apply the social graces that are expected. This works. It's amazing. They, they give accolades because they, they're your friend. They're supposed to encourage you. I went to people I didn't know but knew of and said, would you be willing to try this? And saw where the resistance was, saw where they struggled, but also saw the successes. And that's where I started to refine it. Some people are analytical. They, they want the numbers. So I'm like, okay, I'll research and give you the numbers behind it. But all of them, regardless of the, the depth of integration they were using with Prop First, were seeing measurable results. And I was like, oh, I got something here. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal for a period of time. I wrote an article uh, about Prop First. I, I'd written like maybe 10 or 15 articles as a guest contributor columnist for them. And this one article, Prop First, just blew off the charts compared to everything else I wrote. People saying, wow, this just really works and it could really be this simple and so forth. And that's when they, I, I got something here that I'm now going to make into an entire book. Yeah, this is really exciting. I, and I want to, a lot of listeners may be thinking, I mean, there's a lot of talk in environmental circles of like, oh, we got to destroy capitalism. And they might look at the word profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a problem here. And it's not that at all. I mean, that was my thought was like, oh, this is some trick or something like that. And the book is not that at all. It, I didn't think it was some trick because I knew you, but it's really about yeah setting things up so that things work for you. If you're going to do something and it doesn't throw off enough money for you to live on, and that's what you're going to devote your life to. No sustainability. It, like, don't dig the hole deeper. I believe we have a responsibility to be profitable because it translates to sustainability. But to your point, Josh, some people are adverse to that word. I remember a, a pretty kind of famous celebrity, and I'll skip their name, but uh, this person... A guest caller calls in and says, hey, I'm trying to profit first method. Are you familiar with it? And the celebrity goes, I haven't heard of it, but profit first, that sounds like stupid. That sounds stupid. I'm about people first. 
And I think the context of Profit First, I, you know, I intentionally picked a title that w- would catch people's eyes. Um, that's an important component of marketing. If I said, you know, a simple system to uh, be a little <laughs> more sustainable in your business and hopefully make some money, like I want something that's easy to parrot and also is a little bit shocking. Remember there was a TV show that came out that said The Biggest Loser. And I first, I first heard of the title. I was like, TV is disgusting, that they're, they're making fun of humanity. I'm like, oh, it's about weight loss. This is actually a transformative show. And I started parroting it. But the other resistance I get too is, is we are ingrained that contribution and profitability are not parallel. They're actually polarized. They're opposite. So if I'm a contributor to society, I need to do this through sacrifice, self-sacrifice. And that's true contribution. And uh, I'm at odds with that. I don't think that's true. I think the ultimate sacrifice is sustainability. The, the, I mean, I'm sorry, the ultimate, con, ultimate contribution is sustainability. And uh, that if we're really noble in what we're trying to do, that we should do it that it can live beyond us. The, the mechanism becomes automatic, that the system can support itself. And I think profitability is ingratiated into that belief. Yeah, speaking about systems and system change, and you were talking about earlier community about the people. It, it feels like there's a lot of people who are like the profit first community. You have a profit con. Yeah, we have a annual event. Yeah. Are there a lot of, I mean, I sense that there's a lot of people out there who connect with each other about profit first. I mean, let's see. Now, reflecting, I imagine there's a lot of people who read the book, implement it, and move on. And they're like, right, I never hear from. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the majority. You know, we, we've estimated. Uh, and we think it's pretty realistic that we're now over 600,000 implementations of Profit First to varying degrees. Some businesses, and the business can range from a single practitioner to larger entities, but these businesses can do full rollouts, what we call advanced Profit First, or just the most basic, which is they're just taking a percentage of money and allocating to a profit, and that's it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's spreading out there. But to your point, there is a, just like any community, you have that kind of core community that just is all in. They, they believe it and they become the, preachers almost for the concept. Are some of them, I mean, there must be some accountants. You say like find someone who knows profit first to work with them and they must spread it. Yeah, we have uh, 500, almost 600 accountants globally now that, and bookkeepers that are certified in the process, meaning they teach it, but they've also shown their competency by going through our tests and so forth. And profit first is a organic or dynamic system. It it is changing over time. The, The essence, the core skeleton doesn't change, but the flesh around it does as, as new tax law and so forth comes about. There's little tweaks and changes we need to make. But yeah, there, there's people out there and those practitioners. It's interesting. To your point, most people read a book and I think they're DIYers. So your book, most people read it and say, I can implement this myself. And if we put everything we know into our book, if we put our heart and soul into it, and every ounce of our knowledge, those DIYers will be served. And I think there are they're extraordinary people because they become our marketing arm for our books. The vast majority of people that read Profit First and just doing their own and have been served by it will tell other people. A small faction are, are simply looking for the knowledge and the expertise, but don't want to implement it. So there's a small faction that reads the book and says, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I needed. I now need to find the expert. And they find the practitioner and do it you know, hand-in-hand with them. So they're probably easy enough to find. Plus, you say to email people, people to email you. So you must be referring people to each other a lot. Oh, constantly. I'm, I'm actually looking right now to see if any emails came in. I'm getting about average me one every half hour. Yeah, one came in two minutes ago <laughs> from, <laughs> uh, from Nick. They come in constantly. I don't know many other authors that do that. Actually, honestly, I don't know any other author that does this. What I do is I invite my readers to email me. 
And it is an onslaught. So if someone does this, be prepared for it. I think what we're losing now is the human connection. Like you and I haven't met face-to-face yet. This, this conversation will be absurd even 10 or 15 years ago without being face-to-face. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to bring that tactile experience back. It's also an accountability measure. When people email me and I email them back, often they're, they're blown away. And I'm like, hey, you're, you're all in now. You got an accountability partner. Um, not that I'm going to be following up and checking and saying, how are you doing today? But th- there is a acknowledgement that they made a decree and commitment to this. So that component of a book, I think, is very important. I don't refer people out. Though. I don't say, oh, hey, you reached out here. I can turn you on to something. I do give them a list of resources saying, if you do want help, go here, go there. But I don't, I don't engage in that kind of level of like, hey, I can personally help you. That would just overwhelm me. I have a part-time assistant that all she does is go through these emails and then summarizes them at the end of the day for me because I can't even keep up now at the frequency they're coming in. And then she'll say, you know, how do you want me to respond to all these? And she'll respond in many cases on my behalf. I'll say, use this text here. This one, I'll, you know, four or five of them from the day, I'll say, I want to send a video back personally. So that, that's why I do that email system. I don't send out my email for people to email me, but I do periodically say, if you're in New York, to my listen, and to you as well, Mike, I invite you to my famous no packaging vegan stew. And so far, one person has taken me up on it. That's it. Shocking, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a really delicious stew. (laughs) (laughs) It was shocking. I think think the, the concern people have with any kind of commitment like that is now there's a commitment and the anonymity of a reader starts to go away. Now I'm I'm in a relationship with this author at a new level. I've invited people too. I'm like, hey, uh, want to talk about your business? Take a trip out here. We'll spend a day talking about your business on me um, in a group. Come if you want to come. And um, it's surprising how few people do it yet compared to how many people say, I'm totally in for something like that. Like That could be a game changer for me. Just to meet with other entrepreneurs and exchange and share knowledge. Here's what I found interesting is when I don't do it for free, when, when there's a dollar tag associated with it, it actually changes it to a currency exchange and people are more committed. The free ones, some people say, oh, I'd totally do that. And then there are no show because there's no cost mm-hmm. to them. But when I charge for it now, uh, when people make that declaration and put down dollars, now they're showing up for, for my stew, which is teaching them profit first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as I was reading profit first, it occurred to me, this book is incredibly you said it now. It is a book on sustainability of how to live sustainably. Yeah. Like I'm reading this thinking I have to write sustainability first, you know, yeah, yeah, don't yeah, yeah, hold yeah. me to the title, Yeah. but I, I know there's profit first for other groups. Women minorities yeah, 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 yeah. coming up is, is going to be for real estate. Yep. You're Damon. Yeah. At the aforementioned. Yeah. And uh, so here's some notes I took this. I wrote the book is as much about understanding and showing. Sorry, notes. I could copy your book, switching profligate polluting for profligate spending. Yeah. And humanity suffering instead of just you and your family suffering. So there's similar problems. Focusing on growth, ignoring costs, shame keeping from change, also hopelessness, futility, and an old community with different values, imbalance, unthinkingly applying the old way that seems like it should work, but actually worsens the situation, delaying what you want, never getting it, profit in one air and clean air in another, Mm -hmm. this feeling of desperation. And then it's this monster that destroys your own family, your own community and, and denial. Yeah. And I think when I said those words to you, you're probably, you might be doing thinking both at the same time, but you're probably thinking of the situation of most of the people who get your book, but it's exactly the situation with the environment as well. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, it's interesting. So my two, two of my adult kids are very much into environmental impact. So my one son, he works along with uh, government contractors who are doing like things like 
installing power lines and so forth. And he does environmental impact studies, makes suggestions on how you know, to not affect the box turtles in the area and how to maintain stuff. And my daughter works at a thing called Raptor Trust. Um, when a bird is, a wild bird is injured in New Jersey, where we live, and they will take them, they can take them to Raptor Trust and rehabilitate them. And so it's all these indigenous birds. What I found is some people in that community that I've been exposed to are like, if I had all the money in the world, instead of like that rich jerk, the world would be such a better place. I would change the world. I'd be such, I would use that money in such a good way. My response to that is, fuck, make that money then because you're the good guy. We need you to win. And um, sadly, I see people that, that say, if I was, but that's really who I shouldn't be. So there, there's this kind of polarization. Wealth, financial wealth is equal to evil. Therefore, I don't want that. But if I was that, I'd be good. And so there's this kind of dichotomy of, I can't be that because that's evil. But if I was, I'd be good. And what I want to dispel is money does not equate evil by any stretch of imagination. Money is simply an amplifier of who we are. So if, if we are rooted in goodness and we have access to money, it's a means of furthering that goodness. You know, like a lot of people don't know, Mother Teresa was a billionaire, not in the sense of the Western measurement of, oh, she used billions of dollars to build palaces, but she used she moved billions of dollars through her influence, some directly to help the orphanages, other ways just through her public influence for, for peace and goodness. We all have that. If we're good, we have responsibility be profitable at the highest levels, because then we can transfer the most goodness into our world. You know, what you're saying about, um, they want, they say, first I'll make the money, then I'll make the world sustainable. Yeah. And your book is very clear about first be profitable, then grow. Mm -hmm. And if you grow when you're not profitable, you're just growing a bigger mess. That's right. If you, uh, I guess, probably creating more debt. If you try to get others to be sustainable while you yourself are not sustainable. It's the same principle. If you're first sustainable, then you can help others as much as you want. You can bring sustainability as much as you want. But if you yourself are not, you're saying if if you're a good person, but if you, it's very easy to confuse what you think is sustainable with what is actually sustainable. Mother nature doesn't care about your opinion. It cares about your actual behavior. Yeah, I I read a book, uh, is it called Cradle to Cradle? Does that sound familiar? It's about- Sounds familiar. It sounds like the life- Life of a product. So a product when it's created and then once it's no longer used and uh, it returns to earth, that, that's what they call cradle cradle. And, and we can design that way where it, it is not of negative environmental impact. What impressed me about that book was not content. It was the book. The book was actually designed to deteriorate rapidly. I think if mm. you poured water on it, there's something like you could do and it would facilitate it. They used this material and they explained how they used, they used it from recycled products, that there was, it was a, a net zero emission and so forth in the creation of this thing. And then when the book was no longer usable or read by the reader, that it would return to earth and assimilate so much faster and healthier, but less, less impact or no impact compared to the others. And I'm like, like, oh, this author gets it. The book was ridiculously expensive because it wasn't a practical application yet. So maybe it was like a $70 book as opposed to one that would be $15 or whatever. But as I read that and held it, it's like, oh my gosh, this person gets it. They, from, from day one, they're actively doing something that's sustainable. From day one, they're building the system. And uh, that's how it works with Profit First. But I think that's how it works with anything. Some people come to me and said, I can't do Profit First until I'm profitable. And I, my response is, 
you can't be profitable until you take your profit first. Like you've proven over the last X number of years of running your business, of not being profitable, that you're not getting there that way. We're not going to wait until it just kind of falls in your lap because it won't. It's actually going to get worse. It's going to spiral down. Let's start implementing a system that brings about profitability immediately. And you're going to face some hard truths. You're doing things that aren't fiscally sustainable. And once you start taking your profit first, you guarantee profit. So I think we just got to get past this mindset. It's not a moment of when we can implement a version of whatever we're looking to do immediately and position that for scaling and growing. It's very hard to achieve something and then rewind and start to fix it all after. I'm going to add to that that read the book if any of that didn't sound plausible, because it might have sounded, some of that might have sounded implausible to me before I read the book. And I was like, yeah, 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 in like the first couple of chapters. And then I'm reading, I'm like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And I'm like, you know, I took accounting classes yeah. and I know double entry accounting and I wasn't going to do it. And I keep telling myself I should get around to it. My stepfather is really into that. So he like sat down with him and he showed me how he does it. And I thought that might get me into it. And now I'm like, I got to do the instant assessment and start getting to the target percentages. Yeah. And here's a wonderful thing. Like you don't even need to get to that. I love yeah, that I you th- acknowledge like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to double accounting one day, double entry accounting, and you didn't. I think appreciating that and realizing that about ourselves as opposed to combat, being combative with ourselves and saying, I must, I must. The fact, if you're taking a percentage of some of your income and putting that away for profit, my God, you're 99% of the way there. The rest of the stuff is, it'll make it a little bit easier. It'll bring a little more clarity. But gosh, the impact you're having on your business now, you've brought around financial sustainability. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Okay, so while I'm reading, I'm thinking this, this would apply, you know, take out the profligate spending and, and replace that with profligate polluting and it would work. But I kept thinking he's got an advantage that an environment doesn't quite work, which is that everyone who starts a business wants to be profitable. Yes. And not everyone... Everyone in principle wants sustainability, but there's a, there's a disconnect oftentimes because a lot of people connect GDP growth with growing jobs. And if we don't do that, then we won't be able to sustain the infrastructure and you know, the hospitals all close. And, and so they, they don't have a clear sense of, I definitely want sustainability or I definitely want. That's a big challenge. So I'm only partway into fix this next and it starts right off the bat with what are the values? And so I'm seeing you fix the, this. And you actually saying fix this next, read this first. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think that, I think a lot of people need the, the kick in the butt. You had your moment with um, your business not working and your daughter. So he's yeah. got a story in the, in the beginning about his daughter being like, I'll help you with a few pennies. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people haven't had that moment. Like they can see, I don't know, floods in Europe and California on fire yeah. and say, oh, there's some issue. But Governments, corporations, they're the problem. Yeah, we, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking with a psychologist, a psychologist in particular, as I was writing Profit First, but all my books, because I really want to see what, what changes, what, what causes our mind to see a new perspective. And she goes, oh, best thing is trauma. 
uh, which is also the worst thing. You know, trauma can go to PSTSD, but sometimes a traumatic event, we will say, oh, I will never allow this to happen to myself or anyone else again. So when I lost all my money, I was like, I will never allow this to happen again. You know, watching something on the news is a very passive thing. So people are getting killed in Afghanistan. It's like, woof, thank God, that's horrible. Thank God it's not me. There's no motivation. But if that was your child, massive motivation. You know, when we see these floods and stuff, if we can find an immediate impact on us directly, then it becomes a changer. So you see those floods, get down there and start being a first responder. And the way you see the world will, will change radically. We need a visceral impact to say, oh, this affects me too. That's why, you know, we had a hurricane tear through, I'm in New Jersey, uh, called Hurricane Sandy that took out northeastern New Jersey where I live. Remember a roller coaster ride that's near the beach actually was pulled out deep into the ocean, you know, 100 or 200 yards out. And I saw it in person as I couldn't believe it. When I toured through our town and I, I lived in a shelter where my, my family basically stayed in the shelter for, for two weeks along with the entire community. Now I was like, oh, I get what a hurricane is. I've seen these on the news a million times. I've heard the stories, but now I understand the impact and it, it changed my paradigm and, and how I behave. The challenge we face in, in any, anything is if it affects the globe, it affects others, we won't be visually associated with it. But we do have a choice to get a visceral association. And often that is getting our hands dirty. I'm going to walk you through the Spodic method, which is the core of my book. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. And part of the issue is that the people with the most resources, having status, having resources means you can protect yourself from the problems, but they're also the most polluting. So, if, and there's these delays that, you know, the, the trouble that we're seeing today is from people doing things 20, 50 years ago. So what we're doing today is going to affect people ourselves if we live, you know, another 20, 50 years, uh, but certainly humans. So if we wait for the people who are the most polluting to feel it. Yeah, I agree. So it's a couple steps. Is the environment something that matters to you? To me? Yes. Yeah. Enough to act in some way. Yeah. When you think about the environment, what do you think about? What motivates you? And, and I'm not asking in the future, like what you want to change or what you want to, what inside you means the environment is important to you. Yeah. So how I see it is there is an integration of personal health and wellness associated with the wellness of our environment. So if the, if the air is clean, if life is, indigenous life is, is flourishing, there's a sense of wellness and health internally. And um, it's funny. So, you know, my wife and I, occasionally we go to, we travel to like national parks and so forth. We just returned from Glacier National Park. And we're both sitting there like, well, we feel better here just because of what we're experiencing. That's, that's what I see. I see there, there's this great connectivity between nature and humanity. So you recently went to Glacier National Park. That tells me, and you say you've been going for a while. When you think of breathing clean air, what's an early experience of that that told you, or what's an early connection between clean environment and clean yourself? So I remember, yeah, so I grew up in the 70s and I remember a couple of times um, right outside New York City, going into New York, and the smog. So, you know, this is very visceral. And I think that's what's, what's necessary to see things. The smog was so dense. The quiet air was so bad that it was actually hard to breathe. I felt the visceral impact. And that's something, you know, you come through the Lincoln Tunnel, which was the stink tunnel. Um, it's still pretty bad. But my God, in the 70s, it was black. And you could feel you are going to die if, if this was... If this was long-term exposure, you could feel it. It's like, oh my God, this is actually starting to damage and hurt me. 
just going through the tunnel in this car with my parents with no air conditioning, burning hot, and still rolling down the windows and trying to hold your breath, like literally trying to hold your breath. Like, just don't breathe it in. It's the other side. And the other side, when you're out, wasn't much better. It, I envisioned it as like the biggest cigarette on the planet that was just underwater. And when it came out, the smoke was on the one side and that black filter on the other. And it's like, oh my God. And um, I don't necessarily recall that thought, but I know it's, it's intrinsically wired into me. So when we visit Glacier National Park, for example, seeing, seeing the clarity of the water, you know, breathing really deeply in the air and just feeling the lungs feel fill with like energy source. That juxtaposition is is powerful. I can see the, the the worst of what humanity can do, and I can see the best of what's available. And so I, I'm an optimist too. Like I'm not the type of person who's like, oh, everyone's evil. I think like, that does not work for me. I'm like, oh, everyone's good. A few people are really struggling and kind of jerks about, it, but most people are really good. And so I look for those things. That's I mean, maybe the optimist mindset. But it's really cool going through that park, and I didn't see any litter anywhere. I mean, anywhere. Anywhere. And there was hundreds of thousands of people going to that park every day. Like we, there was thousands going. I saw people being very careful where they were walking and staying like on uh, paths and stuff like that to, to not damage the root system or something that was just one step away. I saw people like observing animals and not trying to feed them. And it's like, oh my gosh. Then you hear, like, we went with a guide too for a period of time and just this, this person and what they saw. We went through this one trail and there was this moss type thing on a tree. He's like, oh, you know, that's the indigenous people here would eat that. That's edible. Anyone want to try it? I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. Tasted like shit. But I didn't <laughs> I didn't puke. And you just see this harmony with nature. I'm just kind of blurting out stuff here, but uh, that juxtaposition was important for me. I'm going for that visceral feeling guy, which I think I one day I'm going to have this conversation and it's going to be the CEO of Exxon. And I guarantee even if that guy feels like the most important thing is to burn fossil fuels, he's still got something like this. Yeah. And so in your case, with this contrast and with the connection to your well-being of the feeling of the lungs in the Lincoln Tunnel in the 70s versus the feeling of your lungs in Glacier National Park, the, the black soot feeling like you're going to cigarette in one place versus the no litter anywhere yeah. and people respecting things, stewarding things maybe. Yeah, stewarding. That's a good choice of words. I invite you then at your option, you don't have to, but to think of something you can do to act on those feelings. Mm. Now, before you accept or not the invitation, I want to point out something everyone hears, but it's not what I said. I didn't say what's the most important thing you can do to fix the world's, all the world's problems. Right. It's, it may affect the world, but that's not the point, is to act on these, your, what nature means to you. And there's three constraints that I find help. Uh, one is that it has to be something new that you're not already doing. Mm-hmm. It has to be something that you do with your own hands. So no saying, I'm going to start a group and they'll do something or, oh, I'll get my kids to do X. It has to have some physical effect. So not just reading a book or watching a video. So if you're up for it, something to do to act on those feelings in the lungs of the, of the not polluting and the, versus the polluting that you're not already doing, that you do yourself. Yeah, so, uh, so I, yeah, I, I accept. Here's what I like to do because it's different than what I'm doing. So I, start, I have a, uh, a, it's a UTV. It's basically a golf cart. It's electric. One of the reasons I got is I, that, that nausea of, of that, the pollutants and the, the blackness coming out, like it, it just feels better. I also realize the impact of batteries and all stuff. So there, there's no purpose. But that aside, um, I started cleaning up in our neighborhood. But what I haven't done is invite in our neighbors in a way that I'm not placing a request upon them, but invoking a desire. And 
I think here, here's what I like. Here's what comes to mind at the moment is the next time I'm out there doing my cleanup, I just, with my little UTV, sometimes my wife comes, she'll be drinking a glass of wine as I'm running out there picking stuff up, which is actually awesome. Uh-huh. It's to put a sign up saying, would you be willing to help for five minutes? If you're driving by, help me clean up for five minutes. And, and, and just have a sign up there or two minutes. Just to get one person to pick up one piece. And uh, I know it, it's those small acts invoke extraordinary change. I know, I know it's your profit first. Maybe would you be willing to help for 30 seconds? Pick up just one thing. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm thinking. I'll do. Now I know at your level, at the level of detail you put in your books, you'll appreciate my being a stickler here. If you do exactly what you're going to do before, and you get others to do more, you're not. You will be affecting the environment, but you won't be doing something yourself that's new. Right. You'll be getting other people to do something. Right. That's what you said. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So by all means, do that if you want. Now, if you if by involving them, you yourself also did more that you would not have done had they not. Like if you matched them. Or, you know, or you could do something different, but everyone's quick to, oh, I'll get someone else to do something. Great, great, great. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 I agree. No, I agree. Yeah. I will double down my efforts uh, for sure in this because there's such a clear before and after in our community that once I'm done, and listen, I've been doing this. People come running out from their house and just, they say, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, someone ran out and was giving my, my son was in with me one day and like giving us water and saying, we just appreciate you doing this. I will be a more, consistent presence. I think that's it. I will do it more often because just the presence of me doing it is a, uh, a big deal. But I think inviting others in to can start systemic change. I think it's inevitable that that will happen. If you're doing it because you read in some article, oh, you should avoid straws, but not through this visceral from you know, intrinsic yeah. motivation, it's a very different story. And that's, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So let's make it a smart goal. So specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-bound. So when you say double down, how long will you do and how much more will you do? Yeah. So I will do this monthly in the non-snowy days. There's, there's periods in New Jersey where we are, like the snow just covers, you cannot see and cannot move. But when there's non-snow once a month, I've been doing it about twice in the summer and once in the fall, something like that. So I've been doing it about three times a year, doing the neighborhood. It's a big area. I can do it monthly. I will do it monthly. And I think, you know, the interesting impact will be this. When I do it, I come out with bags, I mean, full bags of junk and, re- and I'm separating recycle and so forth. And I pulled out a transmission I, that required a couple of people. It was so heavy. Uh-huh. I think the impact is actually the day I come out and there's nothing. My God, that's, that's victory. That's the goal is, is to do come a month later and there's nothing. Would you be willing to come back a second time to share how it went? Yes. Because I'd love to hear. Actually, I predict that I hear you saying this great value, like you're going to enjoy it. And I predict that you will, however much you think you will, it'll be significantly more. Yeah. Yeah. And in ways that you can't now predict. Yeah. If you can get, yeah. Give me a, give me 12 months to go through the cycle uh, of seeing how it changes. I'd love to do it. Okay, cool. So, oh, this, you know, all right, I'm going to tell you about a couple of past guests. One was, uh, I pick up litter every day. And a lot of people come up and say, thank you. Every now and then, like one guy offered me some candy and <laughs> did not sound as sketchy as that. <laughs> he, he was just like, was thank you. It was and can- he, cocaine candy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, there's a lot of drugs sold in my neighborhood. And once I did see a, a packet and there was a white powder and I was like, I guess that's cocaine. I don't know. Jeez. I mean, Washington Square Park, yeah, regular yeah, yeah. my podcaster, used to 
the drugs there. Oh, anyway, so I'm walking around my neighborhood and I see some woman for the first, no one has come up to me and said, I want to join you or I'm going to do that too. So I see this woman pick up garbage and it's like, she's picking up methodically. So it's clearly not, and she's walking her dog. So she's clearly not just picking up something she dropped. Yeah. So I go, and I don't want to say thank you because I don't, when someone says that to me, I, I, I appreciate that they thanked me and yeah. it motivates me, but I want to say more. So I say, you know, I do this too. I'm, you know, I live in the neighborhood and we get to talking and it's, I'll skip the middle steps. Her name is Alexis Stewart and she lives like right on the river. Anyway, her mother, Martha Stewart is Martha Stewart. <laughs> I'm like, okay, tell me about yeah. Martha. Okay, yeah, wow. <laughs> and uh, so- Martha Stewart's daughter, who, if you thought you were richer than God, <laughs> yeah, 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 and she picks up litter, yeah. like virtually every day, and she loves it. And we made this great bond because you know how it is when, when two people who do something that most of society says, oh, people ought to, but I'm not going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could really bond over it. It was a really great experience. And another one was um, John Lee Dumas, whom I, I presume you know, but I'm not sure. I know very well. Okay. And when I asked him what the environment meant to, you, meant to him, he said, at this point in my life, um, nothing really. Yeah. Not a big deal. And within a couple minutes, he reflected and, you know, he lives in Puerto Rico and he yeah. r- runs by this beach all the time. And he said, the beach is covered with trash a lot. And so he said, one month a year, I'm going to go pick up litter and he'll do it for one year. And the proximity of profit first to uh, entrepreneurs on fire is fairly close. Yeah, yeah. And uh, your commitments are fairly close. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. And actually, he also inspired me back because before that, I had been, I don't know if you know the term plogging, which is a Swedish term from, in Swedish, they combined pickup with jogging and they got plogging and picking up literally jog. And I've, ever since he took on his commitment, actually, since I heard about his results, it got me, he inspired me to plog instead of jog. So now when I jog, it's like jogging plus squats and deadlifts, body weight to pick up litter. Cool. I, I'm going to Google that. I, it's funny because when I jog, I, I see this stuff because you're, you're so close to it. And I was like, I never have stuff on me. So this is, I was out for a jog just this is literally two days ago. And there was just one big piece of garbage I could carry. So I carried it. I'm like, oh, this is, this is an even better work. <laughs> it's an even better workout when you're carrying heavy weight. I like that. So I propose uh, picking up here, I guess in a year's time from now. Yeah. So I'll put on my calendar to check in. We, we'll see each other in the meantime. Don't tell me too much because I want the listeners to get the full thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, Actually, I should ask before closing, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything, anything you want to say directly to listeners? Yeah, I'll share one final thought around profitability is uh, I think the great irony is your, your customers, whoever you transact with, actually want that for you. They want you to be profitable, not because they want you to be the rich person necessarily, maybe, but they want the best of you, of what you can bring to the table. And when we're not profitable, when we're not sustainable, when we're worried about our own sustainability, we can't bring the highest level of ourselves to the table. So anyone you interact with, I am telling you, if they really want the most of you, the essence of it is profitability. So they want you to be profitable. And this is really great stuff. I mean, you're blowing my mind with every other sentence. <laughs> I mean, what you said was really, I don't know, to me, that was very touching and very meaningful. Thank you. But it's, it's the truth. And you know, as I learn more about what you're doing, I'm like, oh my God, like me, Josh needs more makes more. Josh needs more because you're doing such good things. You know, you've got to win. You've got to be the good guy who wins. Well, thank you. Uh, I'll give you an open invitation between now and a year from now, if you want to come back, to have you back. But in the meantime, Mike McCallowitz, thank you very much. Thank you, brother. Good spend time with you. 
How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.